Welcome to Trade Finance Talks, a podcast from Trade Finance Global. During this series, we'll be hearing from global experts, as well as learning about the latest trends, technology and insights in the world of international trade and receivables finance. Episode 42. So look, crises are generally very bad for SMEs. They tend to bear the brunt of them and they tend to be late in the queue for assistance. The first thing is that there has to be a development impact, a clear, measurable development impact of what our money is going for. And that's with a focus on emerging markets. I'm Dipesh Patel, editor at Trade Finance Global. Today, we're talking about micro, small, and medium enterprises, or MSMEs, and their importance in real-world economic growth, job creation, and innovation. MSMEs are one of the strongest drivers of economic development, innovation, and employment, and access to finance is often identified as a critical barrier to growth for MSMEs. So creating opportunities for MSMEs, particularly in emerging markets, is a key way to advance economic development and reduce poverty. However, there is an MSME financing gap to the magnitude of over five trillion US dollars a year, according to IFC's recent analysis by the SME Finance Forum. Some 200 million businesses worldwide need financing to invest, grow, and create new jobs. And they account for nine out of 10 of businesses, over half of global GDP and around two thirds of jobs worldwide. We wanted to investigate this and discuss why governors, financiers and private sector players need to come together to support development in the MSME sector. So following on from TFG's recent announcement of an industry partnership with the SME Finance Forum, today I'm joined by their CEO, Matt Gamza. Matt, welcome to Trade Finance Talks. Thank you for coming on the show. Hi, Deepesh. Thanks for having me. Can you give us a 30-second elevator pitch? So who are you, where are you from, and what do you do? Okay. Well, I'm Matt Gamser. I run the SME Finance Forum, which was created by the G20 countries, and it's managed by the IFC. It is a the center for the finance industry for shared learning, networking, and public-private dialogue in the field of small business finance. Basically, we're helping the finance industry grow stronger so that SMEs can get a better deal from them. So following on from your introduction to the SME Finance Forum, let's jump straight into the G20 agenda and how it directly ties in with the MSME finance gap. How did you come out with the five trillion figure and why is it so large? I'm chuckling because this is, I, I'm trying to make this not too long a story, but so the G20 was formed in the teeth of the last financial crisis. They decided at that time, I think quite wisely, that financial inclusion was something that needed to be a concern, not just restabilizing the financial sector and restoring its integrity, but trying to make it serve more of the world. And they then made a second clever decision, which was that inclusion needed to think about enterprises and not just about individuals. And so they decided to make SME finance a part of their core agenda. And at that time, I was doing other things for IFC in Asia. My colleagues from IFC, along with McKinsey, did some heroic extrapolation to to estimate what the gap might be 
for micro, small, and medium enterprises for credit around the world. And they came up with a report called Two Trillion and Counting because the number at the time was two trillion. I, lo and behold, a few years later, I'm asked to join and form the SME Finance Forum, another decision of the G20. And what do I start hearing right from the beginning? From uh, the loudest noises often were within the World Bank Group and the IMF, our neighbor down the street in Washington. They were saying, this can't be right. You know, you were really using a lot of stretch extrapolations here. This could be done better. So we said, okay, you're the smart people in the room here. Let's get you together and figure out how we could do this better. And so a couple of years ago, after a few years of headbanging, with some of the really bright minds in the IMF, the World Bank, and the IFT, we, and with a lot more data that's available today from databases around the world, we did recalculate the figure. And yes, we were wrong. Unfortunately, we were wrong on the low side, not on the high side. And the figure, and this is the figure only for emerging markets and only for, for formal micro, small, and medium enterprises, the figure came to 5.2 trillion plus. Now, if we add in rich countries, and we add in informal sector enterprises, it becomes much more of a heroic extrapolation again. But I think we can be looking at figures more like eight, nine trillion. And just to show you that this figure is not out of the realm of possibility, I've heard in, you know, through other inquiries, we've found that people who are talking about things like money locked up in payables, receivables to, sorry, in receivables to SMEs, that figure is north of 15 trillion. So if, if SMEs that are engaged in trade are waiting on 15 trillion plus of receivables, it's not, it doesn't seem that heroic to extrapolate that maybe there's a credit gap in the area of 9 trillion plus. So large, be, and you know, why? Because the simple answer is that SMEs have been hard forever for financial institutions to serve. And so everybody pays lip service. Oh, they're so important. We want to help them. And then in reality, does as little as they can, because up until recently, it's been a market no one understood well, and everybody was afraid of. Let's take a step back and try and connect the dots. I think it's worth bringing the impact of COVID-19 into the mix here. And, and I imagine that the number could worryingly be even higher. So how do governments provide finance that can potentially support MSMEs? And how does this money flow from, say, a government to a multilateral like the IFC or World Bank to an MSME? And has this changed since the onset of the pandemic? So look, crises are generally very bad for SMEs. They tend to bear the brunt of them, and they tend to be late in the queue for assistance. We still have a number of European countries where the SME financing levels haven't returned to pre-2008 levels. And now we have COVID-19, which is more countries, all right, it's not a financial sector crisis per se, but it looks like it's developing a big economic crisis, which uh, is hitting much more SMEs than ever before. So what can governments do? Well, we see governments around the world providing uh, various types of direct and indirect financing to support SMEs right now. You're seeing a number of, of programs that either directly finance SMEs to keep people in jobs, and, and th those are often even grants, not loans. Uh, and the U.S. has a very complex system right now where there are loans that are forgivable if you use them to keep a certain number of people in jobs. How that's all going to work in the long run, we will wait and see. The U.K. has no-look loans for startups, and it's, these are potentially grants, but you know, someone still has to be looking at 
following up and collect correct uh, and collecting on those. So an, an institution like the IFC, I should make clear, the IFC doesn't get much in the way of government grants to do it business. It's business. It's pretty much like an investment bank owned by 184 countries. It basically operates off its balance sheet and it uses its own capital and it borrows in the market to do everything from straight lending to equity to structured finance, risk shares, other capital markets initiatives. IFC right now, what we got from our government owners was we got some fast track approvals to put some liquidity into the system to help our clients around the world, whether they're financial institutions, whether they're real sector institutions. And so we've been initially concentrating on making sure that liquidity is preserved. And so there's the initial emergency is dealt with. And now we're turning our attention to the recovery mode and what we can do to, and that it's in that mode that we're thinking more deeply about how to make sure that our resources are going to get to micro, small, and medium enterprises. And that's a, that's a tough challenge. And there are a lot of people banging their heads against the wall about how to do the right thing right now. So who are you maintaining the liquidity for? Because it's not, let's say, I own a small business in London and my business has immensely suffered as a result of the pandemic. I'm not going to come to the IFC and ask for a, a loan or a grant, am I? No, no, IFC would be helping you indirectly in one of two basic ways. Either the biggest way and our largest part of our portfolio is we have 800 or so financial institutions around the world that we support. And we're making sure they have the liquidity in hand so that they can be supporting in their local markets, micro, small and medium enterprises. A second way is we're also supporting large um, corporations in operating in the real sector, which may have supply and distribution chains that involve thousands and thousands of SMEs and making sure that the liquidity of those large corporations is also preserved, make sure that they can hopefully pass on a break so that if, so that they can pay their suppliers earlier. And if they have distributors that they need payment from, they can give more generous payment terms for their distributors who are micro, small and medium enterprises. Those are the main ways. And we reach tens of millions of micro, small, and medium enterprises around the world through these indirect channels. Is there a mandate, therefore, if an institution such as the World Bank provides that support to an FI, is there a mandate for that FI to provide liquidity, loans, guarantees, etc., to a smaller businesses, which are always perceived as higher risk? Let me back up because I did say that IFC is like an investment bank owned by 184 countries. It's different from an investment bank in a couple of important respects. We have two preconditions for every one of the relationships that we establish, whether they're with a financial institution, whether they're with an, a real sector company, whether they're with an extractive industry like a mining company or something like that, whether they're with an infrastructure builder. For a straight investment bank, in theory, all you have to do is do right by the shareholders, do good deals that are going to make money and keep you in business, right? Well, we need to satisfy two additional conditions. The first thing is that there has to be a development impact, a clear, measurable development impact of what our money is going for. And that's with a focus on emerging markets. The second one, which is a little more of a complex concept, but it's a term that's very familiar in Europe, is our deals have to have additionality. And what additionality means for the IFC is that our deals have to 
by IFC coming into the deal, it has to do something that wouldn't already happen with the private sector doing the deal by itself. So that becomes often one of the most complex discussions we have with our government official board about whether we should do a deal or not. It's kind of hard ex ante to say that we're, we can definitely say that the private sector wouldn't do this or wouldn't do it in the same way without us. But that's one of the requirements. And we, we often have to work very hard to think about this and make sure that we really are necessary. Micro, small, and medium enterprise support is very often a key element of both the development justification and the additionality in the deals we are involved in. It's not, it's not 100% of our deals, but for example, in the financial sector, which is the part of IFC I work in, I would say that it represents more than the majority of our deals. It's one of the key reasons. So whether we're helping now or whether we were helping before, we're following up and we're making sure that those institutions are using our money to support MSMEs. So let's move into solutions and, and perhaps we can start with technology, which we've seen a rapid advancement in over the past decade, but also really in the last couple of months since the, at the onset of the pandemic. And we've seen integrated systems and changes to the way we do work and do business. Can you discuss some of the ways technology is helping MSMEs access finance in emerging markets? Absolutely. Technology is the critical factor. Uh, You may remember I said earlier in our interview that up until recently, SMEs have been a real trouble for financial institutions. And the reason that they're they're becoming less and less of a trouble and more and more of an opportunity for the institutions that have cared to dig into this is because of technological change. And even more specifically, the, the more that SMEs are moving their commerce and their payments from analog to digital, in other words, from paper and cash to electronic, the more opportunities are opening up to solve the fundamental problem that existed before, which was the excessively high cost of having the information you needed about SMEs in order to manage the risk of your financial relationship with them cost-effectively. We had no problem on knowing in principle how to manage the risks of dealing with SMEs. The trouble was we couldn't afford to at any scale. And, so, and, the, and the bigger and the richer uh, financial institution in the country that it's in, the harder it was to do this because people cost more. And, and we were using people-intensive ways more suited to corporates usually to try to deal with SMEs. And they didn't work. And we couldn't use the purely automatic ways that consumers were dealt with either because we didn't tell us enough about what was going on in the business side. But now, now things are changing. And the, those that are at the forefront of the change are the ones who are figuring out how to help SMEs make this uh, transition and how to capitalize on it through making sure they have a hold of that data and that they have a hold of it real time. Great. And I think there are lots of technologies and examples that we can discuss here. What, in your opinion, are the largest opportunities for tech within MSME finance? And how can we drive a bit more innovation in this sector? Especially since we're talking about trade. Look, um, I often say, and I'm not joking, that trade finance really is very little change today from 14th century Venice. I mean, maybe we don't have the sealing wax on the documents, but we still have all the paper we don't need and all the intermediaries we don't need. And, you know, I like notaries as much as anybody else, but they're not needed in this digital era. 
and, and they, they gum up processes. And the combination of the physical side of trade and the money side of trade, the combined paperwork is just, it's just, it's why it's so hard for small businesses to trade across borders and why they tend to shy away from that, even though we know that those that can succeed there tend to grow faster and create more jobs. And they also diversify the ways of, from a country point of view, of building your export base. If you put all your eggs in a few large exporter baskets, that's very vulnerable. In principle, it's better to have a diversified way to export, but our system hasn't supported that. And so there's huge opportunity there. There's huge opportunity, related opportunity in supply chain, because they too, I mean, you, you, banks talk about, I do supply chain finance, and I'm not going to name names, but usually what they mean is they're about, there's a company and it buys from thousands and thousands of companies. But what we're doing is we're taking the 10 tier one suppliers and we're financing them and everybody else is on their own. Well, that's not supply chain finance. And now with digital and creating platforms, we're seeing ways that the full supply chain can be financed. And similarly, we, we see the way that full distribution chains can be financed. And there's a beauty to both these things and to e-commerce in that the platforms themselves are perhaps the best security. And I mean that in the sense of collateral that, cause that's the other problem about SMEs. Bankers and bank regulators say, but they don't have collateral, meaning they don't have mortgages, which are not the only collateral out there, but be that as it may, bankers tend to look at mortgages and cash in the bank. SMEs don't tend to have a lot of either of those. If you're the, the key to that SME's market connection, that's the best security you could have. They, of course, want to honor their obligations to you because they don't want to lose their access to the platform. And if you know that they're regular suppliers to you, you know that if money's going out through your platform to them, it's going to come back because they want to stay in your good graces. Right? So there's huge opportunity that the trouble is that it turns on its head traditional practices of bankers and it really challenges bank supervisors. So the people that have the most money, the banks, are the, they have the biggest problems with doing more in this. And it's the non-banks who are making the biggest strides, but they don't have the easy access to capital uh, that, that banks do. So, but we're seeing breakthroughs here, right? And, and that's, that's where I think the breakthroughs are going to come either in alliances between banks and non-banks or in non-banks, just uh, some of them, like the big technology companies. I'm thinking of people like Alibaba, people like Amazon, people like Google. These guys are already big enough. They don't need banks to have access to money. They might come in and take over the whole thing. There may be alliances. Some banks are getting more oriented toward alliances and being able to, to go digital, and, and most are still struggling. And COVID, the one good thing about COVID is it's shown the laggards why it was important for them to have gone faster into this digital space just because of the problems dealing with their customers now of all sorts. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think there are lots of innovation opportunities within the distribution secondary trade finance space, although actually in the primary space when it comes to lending to a business, I think that's where there could be a lot of opportunity, particularly with regards to some of the big e-commerce players, the Alibabas, the, the Amazons of the world. I was at the WTA blockchain forum last year. And, and when we presented a lot of the projects that were going on with regards to DLT within trade, trade finance, supply chain, a lot of governments and policymakers were coming to us saying, you know, this is great. This is amazing. But how can I implement this in my country and accelerate this digitization? In your opinion, what can 
governments and policymakers do to accelerate this digitization and actually assist with facilitating the implementation of this technology, whether it be to into non-banks and other financiers to help MSMEs? Well, I agree with you completely that distributed ledger technology could be extremely important for MSMEs in this regard. And one of the reasons its potential hasn't been seen is that a lot of the initial pilots on uh, DLTs has been about high-end finance, you know, high-speed trading and things like that, where it doesn't make as much of a difference as it can. This way of having one system where the key players can all see everything and it's immutable, you can't monkey with it and perturb the data and everybody can have access and you can go and point to point can deal directly with each other. You don't have to have all these intermediaries to verify things. This is enormous potential. One of the problems is the main problem, I would say at the moment, is still institutional. You need institutional buy-in at scale to certain platforms to make this show what it really can do. And that's where governments and policymakers can come in because it is not in the natural inclination of the big players in different systems to come together and figure out how to be interoperable and harmonized right now. And that's where the intervention of governments can be helpful. What governments don't need to do, in my opinion, is build the systems themselves. I think these systems are already largely built by the private sector, but the problem is they're fragmented and there are too many different groups going their own way. I mean, we, we once had a miracle in the private financial sector where, where First National City Bank came up with the idea that a plastic card could be used not just by the one percenters, but by you and me and everybody else. They not only started building a big business for themselves on it, but they created the true miracle where, where they actually decided to throw that system into open access and they created what's now Visa, and which, and which opened the door to, to MasterCard, PayPal, and everything, right? So that's not going to happen nowadays. I'm sorry. I, I don't know why. If I was a macroeconomist, maybe I could explain it to you. But I'm convinced that the private sector is rather in a prisoner's dilemma right now where the one who cooperates is dead. And so everybody's still staying separate and holding things in their own groups. And so governments have to come in and fix this market imperfection and try to promote, you know, that don't pick winners. There are lots of competing platforms now, but encourage folks to show that you appreciate the value of these. Encourage folks to come in here and to create the scale and, and we'll see who becomes the, who ends up being Betamax and who becomes the VHS. I'm using very old analogies here, and you have young people in the audience, they might not even remember what Betamax and VHS are. So maybe I should say that all the other ways of near-field communication and Bluetooth to be more up-to-date. And then right now we have, unfortunately, thousands of tiny trials of ways of doing distributed ledger technology related to SMEs. What we need is to have a handful that really burst out at scale and, and so that everybody signs on and we really see the power. Totally agree. And, and actually that prisoner's dilemma is, is a very, very good analogy. And when, when we talk about mass adoption, perhaps we can look at some use cases around companies such as Uber who have come onto the scene so quickly. I think the digital island effect, particularly with regards to interoperability and you know, banks or groups of banks operating in silos, and, and we even see a bit of a geographical silo here is also person. I think it's a good idea now to bring up the SME Finance Forum's annual meeting, which is going to be held in, in Bangkok later this year. And in Asia Pac, there are so many developments in trade tech. Why do you think Asia is such a hub for technological innovation and development? And the reason why I ask that is because 
when a lot of people talk about the MSME finance gap, the gap is disproportionately large in, in APAC. Is this a coincidence? Well, I think it's disproportionately large in APAC because there are a lot of people in APAC. Um, it's not that, you know, from a, from a relative point of view, it's very large in the Middle East, but the absolute size isn't very high and the gender gap is bigger in the Middle East. Let me talk about the good side. Why are things moving faster in APAC? I think it's because APAC has a lot of countries with a lot of people where it's difficult to move around. It's been difficult to move around and connect for a long time. But because they didn't, um, their history wasn't like on the same time scale as the history of, say, the United States, you know, where the U.S., you know, when it came out of World War II, what did it do? It built the interstate highway system, right? And because that's how you got around, that's how you connected things. Well, these guys, they grew up in the era where you connected things through things like cell phones and the internet. And so they didn't, and they didn't have this legacy tradition of doing things differently. So, you know, many people don't know it. Everybody thinks that mobile banking started with M-Pesa in Kenya, but actually the Philippines was doing mobile phone banking before Vodafone even started. Cause I was at a meeting where we, where we brought people together to talk about it, like the sort of thing I do today in the SME Finance Forum, but this was with the World Resources Institute back in 2004. And the people who were going out to Kenya for Vodafone heard the two Philippine telephone companies show how they were already doing money transactions on phones. Now, it was very awkward, very key and a lot of number intensive, but it gave Vodafone the boost to say, wow, we got to get going. We, you know, there are other people already on this. Let's go. And M-Pesa managed like many things with the Philippines, it ended up overtaking the Philippines and what it had been able to achieve. But then there was another guy, meanwhile, who went to America. He'd been an English teacher in China. His name was Jack Ma. And he came back and he said, you know, China's got this problem too. And I see all this stuff in America like eBay and Yahoo and PayPal and stuff. And maybe I should build an Amazon. And, and I think China could use these. And the only difference was he built them all inside the Alibaba family. And, and the government allowed him and a few other entrepreneurs to build large integrated systems, just like governments in Southeast Asia are allowing uh, Grab and uh, Gojek to build integrated systems with a different start with uh, ride hailing, but now broadening into other industries, into financial services. And yeah, there's a huge amount of power because you have this combination of folks that don't have legacies holding them back, are very mobile phone savvy and comfortable. And everybody's got smartphones now and they cost less out there. And so all these things make APAC such fertile ground for this. The only question right now is, in my mind, is to what extent you already see investment from the Chinese side in the rest of Asia. It's been deliberately minority investment for the most part because they don't want to raise policy obstacles. But it's also, that's also made that meant that things have taken a bit slower to take off in some cases. So where is that going to go? And to what extent will that also be the way things go into Africa and Latin America? And, and I would have said a couple of days ago, well, maybe we'll wait on Europe and North America. But I was re reminded the other day that Alibaba already has a partnership with Cabbage to do lending for, to U.S. small businesses who are on the Alibaba platform for buying and selling. And, and Alibaba just announced, I think yesterday, that they're doing a new direct financial product from themselves, even without cabbage, to help preserve liquidity in the people who are on their platform in the U.S. So how long can it be till they announce similar things for Europe? Um, so maybe COVID-19 is actually going to accelerate 
this integration, even at the same time as we're so worried about trade tension? I, I don't know. I, I'm an optimist overall because the power of this, the potential and the power of this is showing through even the darkest bloom of COVID-19. Thank you very much, Matt. And, and I guess just to, just to bring this to close and, and in light of some of those innovations that you mentioned, from an SME perspective right now, what are the top pieces of advice you would give to them during these uncertain times? So that's, a, that's an MSME. It's, they're looking into new markets. They're innovating. They're getting back into work amidst all the uncertainty. They've probably been through an incredible amount of turmoil due, due to the pandemic. What are your top tips? I want to say a few things about the SME Finance Forum at the end, but um, the, my first advice, and this would have been advice before, but it's even more important now, don't be satisfied with crappy service. Be, be ready and willing to change because there, there are more and more alternatives for you out there. And they're even more important to be less patient now because being patient now could be the difference between life and death. And it will be the difference between life and death for many small businesses. So if your provider isn't doing the right things now, isn't able to get on the government programs, isn't able to get you an answer quickly, find somebody else because there are people out there that, that are looking for you and they've been looking for you all along, but now you really need to find them even more urgently than before. And the second thing is I think SMEs need to keep lobbying to be considered in all this because the politicians tend to say, yes, SMEs are really important. And then when you actually look at when programs are implemented, they don't get out there to the SMEs, whether we're talking the emergency programs or whether we're talking the regular programs. But since we're in COVID-19, you have to keep a special eye on the emergency programs and make sure that the governments are following up, that there's a long distance between when the parliamentarians make the policy and when the, the policy gets implemented by the agencies and, and the regulations and the rules come out. And unfortunately, we've seen a lot of problems arise in that transition between policy and implementation in many well-meaning programs. So the SMEs have to sing out and have to sing out loud and, and hope that you can make, you know, get changes made as, as quickly as possible. Those are my general bits of advice. I mean, um, there's so much change. There's so many people doing interesting things. It's really, really hard for anybody to be on top of this. And I spent 25 years as a management consultant before my 15 years at IFC. And, you know, as a management consultant, our whole business was based on we could stay ahead of key areas and we could be advising the clients well on things. I think in this area of financial sector innovation, there's too much going on too fast. The idea that you should bring in, and I'm not going to name names because I don't want to make enemies, but that you should bring in any sort of management consultancy to tell you what you should do. It's really hard. You know, how can they be on top of it? The people that are doing it are innovating every day. And that's one of the reasons why I like what we do in the SME finance forum, because we're not doing financing, we're not doing management consulting or other advisory services. We're creating a great space for the industry, a giant speed dating arena, virtual and sometimes physical, where people can come together, share lessons of what they're doing, find new business and market opportunities, and also to be an unusual group, a more diverse, a more globally diverse, a more institutionally diverse, a more size diverse group that can talk to the high-level policymakers. And we do that all the time through webinars, through communities of practice, through working individually with our members. And, and yes, you're right. We, we have an annual meeting, the Global SME Finance Forum. It's our big flagship event. The last few years, it's brought 600 plus senior bankers, tech innovators, and policymakers from 80 or so countries 
to, you know, hundreds of institutions to come together. And we love to do that physically. It's really fun. This year, we're supposed to be in Bangkok at the end of October. We're either going to be there because things get better fast, or if they don't get better fast, we'll be there virtually and, and we'll be everywhere virtually. And we'll be holding the most special, unique, diverse, in-depth SME meeting that can occur online anywhere in the world in a given year. And you'll know by before the end of June what our decision is on that because we're, we're eagerly watching the lessons of the opening up and not just in the U.S. and Europe, but around the world. And, and we're also canvassing our members about what they feel about how, how soon they're going to be comfortable traveling across borders. That's going to lead to our decision at the end of this month about what we do. But in the meanwhile, we're doing more than one webinar a week on COVID-19 and SME financing. That's open to our members and to selected friends. And with our partner from TFG, we're happy to widen that circle to more friends. We're doing uh, regular monthly webinars still, and we're planning some new, which new, new, new virtual things, which I will hopefully announce at a future podcast when they're actually there in the system, because I don't want to tip our hands. In case you can't tell, I'm very, I'm very optimistic. I'm very, you know, despite these problems, which are really severe, they're like nothing I've ever seen. And I was there for 2008, and I was there for the 60s in America. This is like nothing we've seen before. And, um, but I think we're also going to find ways through technology, through innovation, and trade is going to just remain very, very important here. And finding ways to get more and more SMEs more effectively involved in trade is going to be a key to coming out of this as fast and with the fewest bruises possible. Thank you very much, Matt. And, and you know, whether virtually or, or physically, we'll be with you at the Global SME Finance Forum, which is on the 26th to the 28th of October this year. And, and we'll paste some more details on the page nearer to the date and keep you updated. Look forward to hearing from you soon. And thank you very much for joining us on Trade Finance Talks. It's my pleasure. Great talking with you. Thanks for listening to Trade Finance Talks. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts at tradefinanceglobal.com. 